we are going to um, jump into a discussion on uh, unity. Um, loving the bride of Christ. Uh, this isn't the first time I've spoken on this topic. Uh, I've taught on this in different church groups in the past. Um, I really love the church, uh, so it's, it's never really been difficult for me to share the Lord's heart for his bride, especially uh, when I'm not part of that church and I don't know what's going on. Um, so I can just say whatever I want to say and I don't have to worry, you know, if someone's going to misunderstand my heart or feel particularly uh, attacked or anything. <laughs> um, because I really do. I, I do really love the church. Uh, and I want her well. Um, however, my actions and my words haven't always shown that. Um, I've complained about the complainers. <laughs> I've complained about those who didn't want to help out. I've, um, I've complained about worship. I've complained because the sermon was too long. I've complained because the sermon was too short. Um, you know, I've, I've shared convicting truths on social media with someone else in mind. I've gossiped, I've spoken negatively. I was unsupportive of the work um, God was doing in a, um, a weaker believer, um, unsportive of the work God was doing in a more mature believer. Um, and all this was before I even ever stepped foot in this church. Um, and I'm telling you all this because I don't have the luxury of not knowing what's going on within our, our church body. I know the incredible gifts in our church. I know the stories of the miraculous. My friend was healed. <laughs> and I've had so many other friends healed. There's so many things that so many things that the Lord has done in and through our church. And there's so many stories that I don't even know because this is only we're just finishing our third summer here. But I have been here since the ground shifted, since the Lord shook things up a bit. And I'm I'm standing here. Uh, knowing and seeing the hurt. Man, guys, I don't want to do this. <laughs> because I've seen it whispering in the halls. I've seen it on social media. I discern it's rearing its ugly head once again as my pastors wipe their tears at a 5 a.m. prayer service, and I don't know the details because they're not telling me. I'm just not ignorant. <laughs> and truthfully, some of you aren't really trying to hide it. But I need you to know that I've broken Jesus' heart too <laughs> by hurting his bride, all the while serving her weekly since I was old enough to babysit kids. <laughs> My sins outweigh my works, and so I thank God for grace. And I thank God that he convicted me many years ago of, of my actions and my mindset. And it wasn't because anyone yelled at me <laughs> or shared anything on Facebook or gossiped to me. It was and in is his kindness that leads us to repentance, and I will say that multiple times tonight. 
But too often we forget that the church is an incredible kindness to us. He could have left us out here to fend for ourselves, to go out on mission with no support, no prayer warriors, no elbow to empower us as an arm and in hand, but he didn't. The church was plan A. It's his will. It's his bride. And so that leads me to my first point, which is the bride of Christ. I am so sorry. I'm going to be snotting all over. At one point, I was like, I'm not going to cry, but I could not cry through worship. So the bride of Christ, my husband, Alex, said for him in regards to church unity and just respect, it starts and ends here. The church is the bride of Christ, the end, except it's not the end for far too many of us. I read an article on DesiringGod.org, which is an international ministry, um, and the author titled this article, Do You Insult Your Savior's Bride? And he says in this article, as much as we may claim to esteem Jesus and desire to speak highly of him, we reveal gaps in our devotion when we broad brush his bride with negativity substantiate strange biases against her, and feed into popular opinion by suspecting, seeing, spinning, and spreading the worst. Whatever the motivations, which are varied and complex, we demonstrate how subtly and perhaps deeply we have been shaped by and conformed to the course of this world when we talk about the church in ways grossly out of step with our Lord. And we show how little we think of Christ by speaking endless negativity about his bride. So before I go any further on this topic, got to throw out just a little sidebar that spiritual, physical, and emotional abuse does not get swept under the rug. True abuse is not condoned. It is not celebrated. It is not kept secret. We do not give space to the enemy. However, evil is not found in a difference of opinion on secondary and tertiary issues, which we'll get back to. But for now, we're just exploring the church as Jesus's bride. In John chapter three, John the Baptist refers to Jesus as the groom and the bride in this passage points to whom we now know as the church. In Revelation, we see multiple references to the bride being the church. In the article I mentioned, the author says, the church is Jesus' bride, the wife of the lamb. And when we admire a man, respect him, appreciate him, and reverence him, we are careful about what we say about his wife, and all the more so in public. We show little esteem for a groom when we insult his bride. So those who genuinely admire and worship Christ will not only reverence his person, but also his perspective. They will want to know and remember, what does Jesus think of his church? What does Christ feel toward her? How does he talk about her? So let's explore some of those questions. First of all, she is chosen. God the Father and Jesus chose the church for its salvation, but he also chooses it as a means to making the truth known to the lost and dying world. Aaron opened up talking about this. Jesus told us right before his crucifixion, which how heavy to know that you're dying, 
but also you have the opportunity to speak to those that you love, you choose your words very carefully and intentionally. What did Jesus do? He washed feet in humility, service, and love. He fed his betrayer and treated him with respect and even honor, but he also talked about his followers and his bride being unified. In John 13, 34 through 35, Jesus says, I give you a new command, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Three times he says, love one another. Because this is how all the people will know that they are Jesus' disciples. He continues on speaking to his disciples, and then he prays. He prayed for himself, his disciples, and all that would come to believe, which includes us. And so in John 17, 20 through 23, we see Jesus pray. I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me so that they may be made completely one, that the world may know you have sent me and have loved them as you have loved me. Three different ways he is asking that we would become one, just as he and the Father are one. Why? So that the world may believe. He chose his bride and called her to unity so that the world would believe. And that's a pretty tall order. And we often overlook that. Unity isn't just for our sake. It's for the salvation of a lost and dying world. But what, are, what, what is that lost and dying world seeing most from us? Are we unified in love? Or is it bickering and disdain? Our job is to be one so they know. This is what Jesus prayed for before he died. It wasn't a flippant or passing request. It was his heart's desire. And it's our job. In Psalm 133, it says, How delightfully good when brothers live together in harmony. Not only is the bride chosen, she's cherished and cleansed. Paul specifically tells the Corinthian church, You are the body of Christ. And in Ephesians 5, we see Paul talk about how Jesus cares for the church. We get lost in that, in that scripture because it mentions marriage. But if you look really closely at the way the church is described, verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to make her holy, cleansing her with the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or anything like that, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands are to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hates his own flesh, but provides and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church, since we are members of his body. So gentle and caring are 
the descriptors there. But are we joining him in this carefully intentional treatment of his church? 1 Corinthians 14 says, Since you are zealous for spiritual gifts, seek to excel in building up the church. Jesus knows every evil detail going on within his body. He's all-knowing. He turns no blind eye to the workings of his enemy, our enemy, but he does not despise her. He still loves her deeply, and we must also, trusting in his character and power to cleanse and redeem. I really like the amplified version of Revelation 3, 19 through 20. It says, Those whom I dearly and tenderly love, I rebuke and discipline, showing them their faults and instructing them. So be enthusiastic and repent. Behold, I stand at the door of the church and continually knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, restore him, and he with me. He isn't sitting there casting criticism over his body. He is redeeming the church from her sin, purifying her as a people for himself. The author of the article I mentioned says this, there is no place for hopelessness about the future of the church. Jesus will build his church and he will cleanse her. Jesus also makes eternal promises to his bride. A covenant relationship and the gates of hell will not prevail. He will be our God and we will be his people. Jesus has pledged himself to us. We will know him in full and we will be fully known. We will dwell with him forever. But until then, Jesus is still working on her. We must recognize the depth of his love and care and attentiveness of his bride. We don't gloss over flaws and failures, but we also don't go around acting as if the church is expected to be functioning in perfection, tearing each other down with every chance we get. But we also have to recognize that not all things we disagree with are actually evil. Some boil down to a matter of opinion and interpretation, and that is uh, not a popular opinion either. <laughs> when it, we're in an age of social media where everyone believes they're right and they have to fight about it. <laughs> so that takes me to my point number two, which is the hills that we die on. <laughs> there are core doctrines that we believe in as Christians. These are primary issues, and they include views of salvation, heaven and hell, the trinity, the resurrection, the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture. That's not an exhaustive list. We also have other matters, and these have been debated upon by very intelligent people for years, like end times theology, activity involvement of the Holy Spirit, women's roles, how often to take communion, the purpose of baptism, any of those things you might have a very strong belief about and just mentioning it might give you a very gut, strong gut reaction because you can back up your beliefs with scripture. However, someone in opposition could do the very same thing. A former elder of ours once said, well, of course we think we're right. Otherwise, we'd change our minds. <laughs> 
we're all convinced we are doing this thing correctly based on our interpretation of scripture. And that does not mean that the Bible contradicts itself. There's just freedom for interpretation on certain matters, like the how of accomplishing a church service. Generally speaking, these are the things that have brought about different denominations. These are secondary issues, not salvation issues. And they're very important because they do impact the way you're going to walk out your theology. But your understanding of them does not change the core beliefs of Christianity. That's why the Baptist Church and the Pentecostals and the Church of Christ can all affirm we're Christians. And even still within those different walls, remember I mentioned secondary, tertiary, People have varying personal beliefs and convictions that don't impact their Sunday worship, yet still align with the core doctrines of the faith. These are simply things the Holy Spirit has asked them to live out for whatever personal reason that doesn't make any difference to us. It doesn't impact us at all. We don't have to fight over how we school our kids. We don't have to fight over how we spend our money, whether an alcoholic beverage on occasion is okay. Gasp. But when we boil it all down, there are fundamentals of the faith, orthodoxy. Those cannot change. Those are the things worth fighting for. Those are the hills worth dying on. And many heroes of our faith did that. And differences in these core doctrinal issues are why we have seen many Methodist churches split from the United Methodist umbrella. That was a hill to die on. But if we elevate personal views and denominational distinctives to the level of orthodoxy, we run the danger of unnecessarily dividing the body of Christ. And I believe that is what we have seen running rampant for years, but definitely recently. We're fighting over secondary issues and beyond, dying on hills that we've elevated above our Savior's death and shackling ourselves where Jesus gave freedom. So let's look at 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 14. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. David Gussick says, The body-like unity of Christians is not a goal to achieve, it's a fact to be recognized. Paul clearly says in that scripture, we're all baptized into one body. So we can then think of this, the scripture, in two different fashions. One, within each individual local church body. There are different humans, different people. This would equate in this verse to the different anatomical parts of the human body. Hands, feet, elbows, mouths, legs, whatever. Every single member is important, just like every part of your body is important. There is no more important job because if you take one thing away, other things might become more difficult or cease completely. Every individual image bearer has a function and a purpose, a specific gift set to help the church function. 
Each member is necessary. A hand can't function without the wrist or the elbow. A knee needs a hip. So then we look at this body analogy on a larger scale. If there are individual local churches that this applies to, then there's also the global church. Christ remains the head of the totality of believers that we consider the global or big C church. Just as each individual human person has a different gifting, mission, ministry, purpose, so too do all the churches that make up the global church. Again, this is why there are different denominations. It's not just because people disagree, but it's because each individual big C church body, each church has a different heartbeat. Just like each of us have different passions, gifts, and each individual church makes up the global body, functioning as a different part of the human body for this analogy. I'm going to share a quote from someone within our church who didn't want me to give out his name. He wanted to remain anonymous. But I will say, he is a great intercessor for our church. Um, He might even lead that team. (laughs) Shh, he's not here. Don't tell him I said that. (laughs) Um, I will say that there there were many of you. I got this this topic. Um, My husband and I have been talking about unity within the church for years and definitely within the last few months. And when I was asked to do this, I prayed like, Lord, should I do this? And he didn't say yes or no. He just said unity. <laughs> so I was like, well, okay, that's, that's my answer. That's what we're going to talk about. And I got so many encouraging words um, from people who knew that's what I was talking about and also had no idea. So I just, if you sent me anything, I really appreciate it because, like I said, I didn't want to do this. It's not an easy topic to discuss. But he was one of them. The Lord um, gave him these words When most of us think about unity, we usually think about it within the four walls of the local church. However, if you read 1 Corinthians 12, 12 through 31, with the perspective that the body of Christ is the bride as a whole and the members as each of the local churches, you gain a whole new perspective. Some are healing churches. Some are deliverance centers. Some are mercy centers with food banks. And yet others are strong expository teaching ministries. We need all of them and celebrate each one, even though they don't see eye to eye with us on doctrinal issues. Let's celebrate each other's strengths rather than cutting them down because they might not see the spiritual gifts the same way. I remember several years ago there was a really popular preacher. Um, He became like a celebrity preacher. I just I could not get behind him, and truthfully, he got under my skin a little bit, but a mentor of mine brought this up um, one day and was discussing how some who are being labeled as false teachers in our culture are often just functioning in a capacity outside of that of the accuser. So in the instance of this celebrity pastor I mentioned, I realized he wasn't teaching super deep theological truths every Sunday because his calling was for unbelievers and unchurched. People who had completely fallen away from the faith or completely fallen away from the church. His teachings 
in Sunday morning services had to reflect the population he was called to reach. He was an evangelism center. So think about some other examples, some other populations of people. A young family with tiny babies, they're not going to fit in with a church that maybe doesn't have a nursery or space for the kids or they don't necessarily like chatter in the services. Those struggling with addiction. Those whose first language isn't English. The homeless. The list can go on of populations who might need a more tailored church culture. And what a gift that the Lord would empower and equip all these different bodies around the globe to meet the needs of his people. Because it is his will that none would perish. And what a gift that the Lord would allow your gifts and scriptural persuasions to fit in with another body. If you have a heart for the homeless and there's a church that has a strong outreach ministry for the homeless, how cool is that? And how awesome that his grace and desire for unity would allow us to lovingly remain within a body whom we might not agree with 100%. And how crazy selfish of us to fight about these differences, to fear the others. The Lord is using each church to accomplish his, pur- his purpose. Spurgeon is quoted to say this, it is not a desirable thing that all churches should melt into one another and become one. Have we ever considered different churches as a grace of God, a reminder of all that we don't know about him, and a safeguard from thinking that we have it all figured out? We must absolutely remain unified to the core doctrines of our faith. These things cannot waver. But the second and third tier matters don't create enemies. They show us God's grace and love and diversity. Other denominations, other ways of carrying out a service, these aren't the problem. True unity is found in Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Another Spurgeon quote, We want unity in the truth of God through the Spirit of God. This let us seek after. Let us live near to Christ, for this is the best way of promoting unity. This is an ouchie part, but he said it, not me. Divisions in the church never begin with those full of love to the Savior. We don't create unity. This is a characteristic of God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are one. Our duty is to recognize the unity found within the Spirit of God and keep it. We don't have to fight for it. We don't have to fight about it. We have to get ourselves out of the way. And that leads me to my next point, which is the battles we make. First, let me say, um, questions are great. Please ask questions. I've always said, and maybe this is just to make myself feel better, but it's better to ask the questions and wrestle with God and his people than to tuck them away. Because when we tuck them away, that's where the enemy can use them. He picks and he prods. 
It turns into angerness, angerness, <laughs> turns into anger and bitterness. <laughs> we can make that a thing. <laughs> I will also call myself a self-appointed question asker for Free People Church. <laughs> the ones who know are laughing. <laughs> but guys, I have never, never once been scolded or shamed for asking my questions. Not not once. The, sh- the enemy made me feel like I shouldn't bring up my questions, which only induced panic. <laughs> but the key to asking questions is how you approach it. And I'm also not saying that I did it perfectly, ever. But I love the message version of Ephesians 4, 26 through 27. It says, go ahead and be angry. You do well to be angry, but don't use your anger as a fuel for revenge and don't stay angry. Don't go to bed angry. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold in your life. We'll briefly talk about handling our conflict in a bit, but if we let our questions sit for too long, we will come to conclusions on our own or with, or with other people who might be encouraging a less than biblical approach. Because we all want a cheerleader when we're feeling feisty. <laughs> no, one, no one wants to be told to simmer down or to be corrected. It's not fun. But when we're in that headspace, we become defensive. And then we're not really asking a question for clarity and understanding. We're shouting our opinion in hopes of convicting someone else. And here's the thing about conviction. We are trying to induce that. And that's the job of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, during the Last Supper, Jesus tells his disciples the Holy Spirit would be coming and said the Spirit would guide us into all truth. I tell a lot of stories, so here's a story. I realized that my questioning tendencies were often from a place of fear, probably far too often. Scripture does tell us to test the Spirit's. And it even gives us a blueprint of how to handle ourselves and others if there is conflict. But when fear is our driving force, it will get cloudy. For me, the Lord convicted me and showed me that fear stemmed from abuse I endured when I was a child. I was led into some horrific situations with people that my family trusted. (laughs) Many things were taken from me, and my voice was one of them. And the spirit of truth guided me to see that my questioning of authority and leadership and rules was sometimes, maybe often, because I didn't want to be led astray. After all, my faith is my responsibility, right? I can't blame my pastors. I wanted to protect not only myself, but my family, my fellow believers, my brothers, my sisters. However, my fear-based questioning led to some unholy fruit. And I had to apologize to some people. Why am I telling you this? I'm telling you guys a lot of very personal things that I don't really want to. But I need you to know that I'm not just standing up here, holier than thou, wagging my finger. I'm telling you that I've been there. I've done the thing, and I've done it poorly. And sometimes I think it was misplaced passion for Jesus. And I know many of you are so passionate about Jesus but we have to quiet ourselves so we can hear the Spirit's conviction of us. If we're only walking around 
seeing conviction other people need, there's a problem. We let his kindness lead us to repentance. And guys, we're given a spirit not of fear and timidity, but power, love, and a sound mind. If we have questions, we ask them quickly. But in power, that looks like Jesus' humility, not the world's bullying. We ask with love and respect and the grace that we have been so freely given. Love is always our driver. In 1 Corinthians 12, it's talking about spiritual gifts and how we all have different gifts. But then in 1 Corinthians 13, it says, If I speak in tongues of men and angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have, a, and if I have prophetic powers and understand all the mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but don't have love, I am nothing. If I give away all that I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. And what I learned a long time ago is that I can't be anyone's Holy Spirit. I can't convict them. Only he can. I can call out and point out all I want, but it's not going to produce holy fruit. Why? Because calling someone out isn't done in love. There's a way of calling people up up to a level of honor, of truth, of accountability. Calling people up to the foot of the cross for repentance. Calling people up to the grace poured out by Jesus Christ. But calling out is ugly. Calling out is full of shame and disgrace and self-righteousness. Not the love that describes our Jesus in 1 Corinthians 13. I think back to all that I have been brought out of. Nowhere near perfect, but mistruths, erroneous thinking, misunderstandings, misguided beliefs of Jesus, myself, others. And I never came out of those things with anything less than Jesus. I love tough love. I've needed a lot in my life. <laughs> I generally respond well to tough love, maybe not always in the moment. But the key word, even if t in tough love, is love. If you're handing out truth, steeped in sarcasm or condescension or pride, I'm not going to receive that well. <laughs> I'd say the majority of, us, majority of us won't either. Which is why we don't see Jesus operate in that fashion. Sometimes we'll read scripture things Jesus says, and we'll add in tones, maybe some sass or some sarcasm, exasperation. Sometimes it's a joke, but I think sometimes we do that because that's the way we have been treating others, and that's not Jesus. We don't make Jesus look like us. We want to look like Jesus. So again, we go back to chapter 13, where love is described 
because we know that kind of love isn't describing marriage, although it is used a lot at weddings, it's describing God, his love. And I realized if the Lord can pull me out of erroneous beliefs or damaging relationships or unholy situations, then he most definitely can do that for someone else. And I'm free to let the Holy Spirit do his job. I just pray. I know I'm not going to blow anybody's mind with this, but it's not a secret that we desire to walk in step with the fullness of the Holy Spirit as we see in Scripture. We believe he is alive and active, and our God who is unchanging, immutable, unable to change, his spirit is still moving. But our true faith and belief in the active Holy Spirit isn't limited, limited to the gifts and the healings. It must include his guidance into truth. In John 16, Jesus is quoted to say, not only that is it to our advantage that he leaves so that the spirit would come and that he will convict the world, but he also tells us that the spirit, the Holy Spirit, will be the one that guides us into all truth. What does that mean for us? It means it's his job to do the convicting. He is able to guide to truth. This doesn't negate teachers or preachers or pastors, but it does mean that the Holy Spirit does not need us in our sass. <laughs> he guides us into all truth, never in opposition to Scripture, never in opposition to the character of God, always in truth, always in love. And if we believe in the power of the Holy Spirit, then we have to recognize that the miraculous he is capable of includes conviction. It, it includes guidance. It includes the revelation of truth. And it's not our job to do that, especially in a way that does not honor our Lord and our King or his image bearers. So I had a whole point on um, reconciliation and dealing with conflict, but felt like the Lord was not giving me the green light for that. So I'm only going to talk on... Um, just a few things. Biblically, we most definitely see instructions on dealing with conflict. Of course we would. We're human, and unity is the goal. I think these instructions are areas we could all tend to, re or we should all revisit from time to time. Uh, Matthew 5, Matthew 18, we hear Jesus' words directly, and in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul goes a little deeper there are definitely other areas, other scriptures. But the Enduring Word commentary provides this insight on Matthew 18. It says, we can say that Jesus gives us two options when your brother sins against you. You can go to him directly and deal with it, or you can drop the matter under Christian long-suffering and bearing with one another. It continues to say, other options... Holding on to bitterness, retaliation, gossiping to others about the problem are not allowed. Importantly, Jesus did not say that your brother must agree with you or immediately repent before you. At first, it is enough that he hears you. Since we know that we're not going to have a knockdown, dragout fight over secondary and tertiary issues, 
whether you deal with the sin directly or you decide to extend grace and drop it, we drop it. Love keeps no records of wrongs. Praise God that after we've repented and sought forgiveness, he forgets. Why don't we extend that same grace? If the sin continues with this person and they're within your physical community circle and you feel like you can speak into their lives, these scriptures tell you exactly how to do that. In love, grace, truth, honor. If you're not willing to meet with them, drop it. If you're not willing to drop it, then pray about it and keep quiet. (laughs) If they're not within your physical circle, then you pray about it. That's discernment. Discernment leads us to prayer. Commentary on 1 Corinthians 6 raises the question about suing non-believers after we read that bringing lawsuits against fellow believers is not appropriate. But it says this, Paul certainly does not bring up this specific issue, and he does not say matters between Christians should be unresolved, only that they should be settled in the proper arena. The world is using social media outlets as their own personal stages. We've all done it. (laughs) Shouting opinions and grievances for all to hear. Except there's a loss of self-control, honor and respect of our fellow humans, and often a loss of self-respect. We are to look different than the world. Our grievances, which will happen, should be settled in the proper arena, following the Lord's wisdom. In Acts 10, we see believers with an issue against Peter and his vision that salvation um, included, or the Gentiles were included in salvation. They discussed this matter behind closed doors. They did not fight about it in public. My husband described this in terms of family disagreements. If he and I have a disagreement, we keep it between ourselves. We don't run to our friends, our Facebook friends, and trash each other. If we have a disagreement within our household, our families of origin, our extended families, it stays within that group. Or it should, anyway. Why? Because even when they make me want to bang my head against the wall, I still love them. But when our friends, coworkers, or 500 randos on social media don't know and love my family, and then they hear the negativity, their view of those people is marred. It damages reputations. We don't want that for them or us. It does not produce holy fruit. Ephesians 4, 1 through, this is a hodgepodge of verses, so just stick with me. Therefore, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling you have received, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope at your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all and in all. Jump to 15. 
but speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, Christ. 25, therefore, putting away, lying, speak the truth, each one to his neighbor, because we are members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and don't give the devil an opportunity. This, I almost took this verse out, but I actually feel like this is um, a word specifically for someone. Um, So if this is resonating with you tonight, you can come up after um, for prayer. But it says, let the thief no longer steal. Instead, he is to do honest work with his own hands so that he has something to share with anyone in need. No foul language should come from your mouth, but only what is good for building up so that it gives grace to those who hear. And don't grieve God's Holy Spirit. You, will, you were sealed by him for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness, anger and wrath, shouting and slander be removed from you along with all malice. And be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another, just as God also forgave you in Christ. Our words, our words matter. And the way we're speaking about our families, our church families, fellow image bearers, period, matters. This reining in of our tongue does not apply to abusive situations. We don't give the enemy any ground. And of course, sometimes we need to seek wise counsel. But guys, not everyone is wise counsel. Your wise counsel will be able to recognize and give grace to what is sin and human nature. And they won't participate in dishonor and disrespect. But we can't expect non-believers to function that way. We can't expect non-believers to function by the same handbook we do. They don't know. They're not idiots. They're just blind. They're playing by a different set of rules. They're not trying to honor the image of God walking around in front of us because they're not trying to honor God, period. They're not trying to honor the bride of Savior the bride of our Savior, like we are called to. And I think this is where I'm the most, the most broken because we, as a culture, have been profaning the wife of our Savior in public, in private, in our hearts, and it's hurting Jesus, and it's pushing away a dying world. Our unity is how they will believe. Last week, Kenton, um, he mentioned we have to learn how to carry the presence of God in our body. And I agree. I think that's desperately the need for all believers. But guys, the presence of God isn't carried by the hands of the bickering and the angry, gruffly pushing our own way. It's carried on the backs of the gentle and lowly, humbly and boldly ushering his way, 
those washing feet and dying to ourselves, not rolling over on truth and scripture, but upholding his sacred word in a, manny, in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Above all, Paul says, you must live as citizens of heaven, conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith, which is the good news. Are we fighting together for the faith, the good news about Jesus? The good news that Jesus took our place in death that he was brutally murdered, though he was innocent, so that we might be rescued out of the kingdom of darkness? Is that what we're fighting for? Or are we fighting over secondary and tertiary things or things that don't even matter? Are we defaming the bride of Jesus Christ? What are we doing? <laughs> If we're doing anything but trying to glorify King Jesus in the way he has asked us, then it's wrong. We cannot come in here bullying our own way. We cannot come in here just to check the box. It can't be for show. We can't come up here or in the back with our hands up, down on our faces before Jesus, and then go out and trash him on the internet or in the hallway or in this very room. Because that is what is happening. That is what we're doing. We're slapping Jesus in the face with every word spoken against the church or another image bearer. It's hurting the dying world. Jesus died for your freedom. And scripture says, do not use your freedom to indulge the flesh, the flesh, but serve one another in love. Are we serving one another in love? Are we washing feet? Or are we mad because no one's washing our feet? Or they're not doing it in the way that we think they should? We go first. Mary's tears and perfume and hair tell us the how doesn't really matter. It's the why. Almost um, five years ago, I began praying for the Lord to shake up the church after I read a book called Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. Um, it ruined me, and I would credit part of my passion for the church to this book. So fast forward, we came here, and then things changed here, and it felt very uncomfortable for me and my husband for a while. We knew we weren't being called out. Just because you feel uncomfortable doesn't mean you're, you leave. But the transition was hard. It was tricky. And it has made me think about previous transitions uh, in my life. So for, I went to a very traditional church growing up, and for most of my junior high and high school career, there was a small disagreement within the church, and I think truly every other church in the 90s and early 2000s, about what the style of music would be. We were very hymn-focused. We, we did a lot of hymns, pretty much only hymns. And so in my college years, we finally shifted 
um, to a style that I enjoyed. I felt like I could truly worship. And just as soon as that shift happened, we got a really cool band. There was drums. And then I got married. And I, we stepped back in time a little bit, back to some of the hymn days. And they also played music in a style that I did not listen to on the radio. And it was hard for me to get into this heart of worship like I could when it's, you know, my style. So around that time, our early years of marriage, a very wise friend and mentor to Alex and I taught a Sunday school class on worship. And it was rough on our toes. Um, But I will boil it down to say that if we can only worship when conditions or songs or leaders or styles are suitable to us, then our worship was never based on Jesus' grace and glory, but on our own comfort. We worship not our Savior, but ourselves. And this is true whether it's hymns or songs you hear on the radio. It's not about us. And there are so many other things that are worship too. Dallas talked about that this morning. Not this morning, whatever, today. But I remember being so bothered by this older generation in my childhood church that didn't want to give up the hymns and the piano. But I wasn't acting any better in that season. And I've struggled the same in subsequent seasons. But a quote from the book, Letters to the Church, said this. The older I get, the more aware I am that the end is near. There is no time to care about what I want in the church. There is no time to worry about what others are looking for in a church. I will be facing him soon, so I have to stay focused on his desires. Truthfully, I didn't even know what his desires were. It was so hard for me to wrap my mind around what the church was even supposed to look like. This quote felt very impactful, but a little unrealistic. But I didn't realize that with with this book and in that time, the Lord was preparing us for a move. A move here, and then a huge shift in how I played church. One more quote from Chan says, It should not feel out of the ordinary, harsh or inappropriate to call the church to change. Nor should we imagine that our unique expression of church is the only one God sanctions. Instead, we should be constantly seeking renewal, being ready at any moment to discard the elements of church that lead us away from God's heart rather than toward it. And guys, I have to tell you, our leadership recognized elements that weren't the Lord's desires for this specific church body. They might have even recognized some elements that were potentially leading us away from God's heart. And they made changes. And I'm not sure if we will all ever grasp the gravity and the difficulty of how scary those changes were and are but they did it because they weren't 
seeking our hearts. They are seeking the Lord's. And they don't foresee God walking us backward. And I fought it for a bit myself until it hit me. I'm standing in an answered prayer. This shaking up is what I desired. I asked God to shake up what I knew the church to be, what it had been for 30 years of my life. And here I was fighting God's movement. And so maybe some of the tension for us is that we don't realize we're standing in a movement of God or even an answered prayer. But guys, maybe the tension you're feeling is that your gifts and calling aren't in alignment anymore, and that's okay. Aaron has said there's grace in leaving. We don't want you to leave. (laughs) It's sad. It's hard. We're a family. It's hard to leave a family. But it's a grace and kindness of the Lord. And I remember Harold talking about how he desired for each denomination to be the best they can be, the best Methodist, the best Baptist, the best Catholic. We don't need to be the melting pot. We can still serve and love Jesus and each other very well, even if it's in different churches. I read this verse in Colossians this past week as I was preparing, and it stopped me in my tracks. I had to read it several times. I had to talk it out. I had to see if it was saying what I really thought it was saying because I'd read it a bazillion times and it had never struck me. But in Colossians 2, 2 through 4, it says, My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul was talking to the Colossians and said his goal is that they would be united in love so that they could have a full understanding of Jesus Christ. And it caused me to think disunity isn't just a slap in the face to Jesus. It hinders It hinders us from a full understanding of him. A deeper grasp of those treasures of wisdom and knowledge. These treasures cannot come through disunity and dysfunction. A more full understanding of Jesus. A more intimate relationship with Jesus as his body. The carrying of his presence comes from unity and love. Disunity is hindering. And that is such a sobering thought. We believe here in spiritual authority and that our prayers are actually doing something. We must then believe that the opposite has a negative effect. Our disunity, our negative words, our spiritual laziness, it's hindering ourselves And it's hindering our body from growing up in Christ like he wants us to, from experiencing him. And so maybe that's the tension. Maybe the Lord is just calling us deeper. Maybe there are some idols that need destroyed in your life. 
Maybe you've carried in some trauma from past hurts. We're a newer church. There's not an adult that was born here. Not yet, but... (laughs) You likely experienced true evil in your life at some point. There's trauma at the hand of the world or maybe even a church. But we can't let that working of the enemy keep us from being part of the family of God and experiencing his fullness. Being a part of a family and community takes work. And you're probably going to have to go first. We can't wait for someone else to do it, especially not someone that's doing more than us. We need to go first. See something, do something. If the Lord shows you a group that needs led, lead it. If he shows you a service that needs done, do it. We have to go first because that's the example we see in Jesus washing feet. And then where do you go from here? I think it's really important that we have mentors and wise counsel in our lives, people that hold you accountable and push back a little bit. We can't just have a group of cheerleaders. (laughs) That's fun, but not always productive. We also need to ensure that we have people that we are encouraging in our in their walks, people behind us. That's also great accountability and important because we're all called to ministry. It's not just the people here that are paid or on staff or hold a title. We are called to go out into the world. And as we go, we make disciples. As we go to our jobs, as we go to the grocery store, as we go to another family function, this is where we make disciples. The people that we are physically doing life with. And if you don't have people yet, your first disciples should always be your children. And if you don't have children, again, it's that physical space, those people who are actually in your lives. Those are the people we're responsible for. And our priority is the truth. Make the truth known in love, and they will be able to spot the lies. They don't need us harping on the negative all the time. If you need to give a warning, you do it to your physical circle of influence with grace and truth and love, out of care and compassion, and always in prayer, always steeped in prayer. Trusting ultimately that the Holy Spirit is the one who guides into truth and conviction. We make it most known what we're for, not what we're mad about. We make it most known what Jesus did. We make it known what the kingdom of God has to offer for eternity and for right now. We make it known that he is healer, deliverer, savior, friend, comforter, counselor, prince of peace. He is the spirit of truth, the creator, the sustainer, our strength and weakness. He is the name above every other name. That is what we make known. We must decide, just like Paul did, to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. 
that is what we know. That is what we make known. That is what we share. We read scripture and words, social media posts with ourselves in mind, not others. We share truth often, encouragement often, Jesus often, warnings sparingly, and anything that might even kind of look like a slap in the face to Jesus or his bride, we share never. We do not engage. And if someone in your circle is doing such a thing, go back to Matthew and address it. We call up. We don't call out. Speak into who God says that they are. Jesus Christ and him crucified. That is what we speak of. We make it known who and what we believe in. Because in that unity, we show the world that Jesus Christ is Lord. In that unity, we honor the sacrifice our Savior endured on the cross. In that unity, we respect the bride that he loves. In that unity, we make room for the Lord to grow us up into greater grace and knowledge. In that unity, we honor the grace and love and kindness and mercy shown to us while we were still actively rebelling. The Bible says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to be perfect. How much more grace and love do we show to those whom that grace and kindness was also offered? They received the same grace I did, whether they realize it or not, whether they're walking in it or not. I treat them how Jesus sees them because it's his kindness that leads us to repentance, not our sass. We must know nothing but Jesus and make him known. He is worthy of it all, him alone. I'm going to read scripture here in Philippians. And then we're going to prepare for a time of communion. It says, is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? Then make me truly happy by agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, and working together with one mind and one purpose. Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. I'm going to read this. I want everyone to close their eyes. And think about who Jesus is and what he has done. And as we prepare for a time of communion, I want us to take take a moment to reflect. on our own hearts where we have defamed Jesus or his bride 
Guys, I know that wasn't what you were trying to do. <laughs> but that's what's happening. And as we prepare to take communion and partake of his body and his blood, I want us to understand the gravity of what he did and what it bought for us, the freedom that we have and the life that we have been called to. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think equality of, with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is what we make known, that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's not, it's not about us. It's not about our desires. Sometimes it feels uncomfortable. Sometimes a yes to God isn't fun. Sometimes he shakes up everything we once knew and held dear to our hearts. But what a shakeup it was to leave heaven and come to earth as a baby. And then willingly die for a people who were actively rebelling, actively defaming, physically slapping him in the face, spitting on him. But he said, not my will, but yours be done. And he went to that cross for us. And guys, I think that we forget <laughs> We forget why we're here, not here in this building, here on this earth. <laughs> we forget and we get caught up in things that don't matter. And we can't.
it's too costly. <laughs> we make him known so that the world would believe. And we lay ourselves down, our pride, our desires, the things, the things we want. Because that's the least we could do. I believe that taking communion is an incredibly powerful act. And I really felt like the Lord wanted us to do to do it after we considered his bride in our actions toward his bride, in our actions toward each other, in our actions to him. And so when we, Aaron is going to lead us in communion as, as our pastor. <laughs> but as, as we do this, I want us to have reverent hearts to who Jesus is and what he has done. Because I believe that when when we do when we are truly united as it says in that verse in Colossians when we are united in love the love of the spirit, it, it changes things and we grow in a way that we weren't able to before.